we've got to stop making them like this. Thank you. Well, yes, uh, good morning. It's been a delightful time that Margaret and I have had here in, uh, in Dothan. What a delightful city. And, and uh, you people have been so kind and, and so welcoming to us. And it, it, very soon we felt very much at home. The, the highlight of our time here was uh, reconnecting with Rusty and Jennifer and their delightful children. And uh, we, we knew them well, known them for many years, and they had an outstanding ministry in New Zealand. And uh, we were very sad to see them go, but we're delighted to come here and see what the Lord is doing with them and through them with the First Presbyterian Church in Dothan. About a month ago, Neil and Jennifer Vincent were in our home for a meal, and uh, they're doing very well. They're settling in, and they were very keen that I bring their love and greetings to you, uh, knowing that we were coming to visit. Well, the theme for our uh, missions conference is The Gospel Goes Global, and uh, the, uh, we had, uh, last time we met, we talked about the gospel going global, beginning with Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria in accordance with the Acts 1-8 mandate. And as we continue through the book of Acts, we see the gospel moving geographically around the Mediterranean basin from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, which you just can barely see there, it's just out of sight, a little bit more perhaps, there we go, uh, and uh, <clears throat> now we're going to be looking at the advance of the gospel through Asia and Greece. Now if you could, if you could imagine yourself back in this time, about 10 or 15 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ, if you imagine yourself looking down on the Mediterranean world from a great height, and all you can see is blackness and darkness. This is uh, Satan's stronghold. And the darkness of unbelief is all-pervading. And as you continue to look into that darkness, suddenly you see little pinpricks of light appearing in that darkness. And these lights begin in the east around Jerusalem and then spread north to Antioch and Samaria. Then there's a pause, and you keep looking. And after a little time, a few more of these bright pinpricks of light appear in Galatia, just there over the, uh, over the hill from Tarsus. Then after another longer pause, suddenly two or three appear over the Greek peninsula, across the other side of the Aegean Sea. They're just like little flickering fireflies in the darkness that could be snuffed out at any moment. And, and these, the darkness looks so prevailing, and yet here are these tiny little flickers of light, and they look so fragile and so vulnerable amidst that vast expanse of darkness. How could they possibly survive? Their little sparks of light are churches. 
Tiny churches planted by Paul and others. And the only reason they survive and grow and become a worldwide beacon of hope in a dark world is because the Lord and King of the church is watching over these tiny pinpricks of light. And by his word and his spirit, he will fan these flickering lights into a great flame that cannot be quenched or stopped. And we have had evidence before us at this missions conference of how 2,000 years later, those pinpricks of light are continuing to grow around the world. And in spite of the opposition of sin and Satan and unbelief, they are continuing to grow and survive And many people are hearing about Jesus Christ. So let's begin today with Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Acts 11, verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. What do you think is going on here in these verses? Well, God is at work preparing Antioch to be the first missionary sending church in the history of the Christian church. He is preparing Antioch and the people in Antioch and the leaders in Antioch to be the first staging post of a push westward with the gospel into the heart of the empire. There were 14 cities named Antioch in the first century Roman world. This one, Antioch, you see on the far side of the map there, is the capital of the Roman province of Syria. Barnabas invited Saul to Antioch to help him out with all the new converts. Converts, and between the two of them, they had a significant teaching ministry for a whole year, which resulted in the raising up of spirit-filled leaders who, as goers and senders, would spearhead the advance of the gospel into Asia and Greece. It wouldn't come from the Jerusalem church. It would come from the Antioch church. So if you turn your page to Acts chapter 13... Verse 1, 
Acts 13, 1, in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is the first time that the word worship is used of a Christian gathering. It's the first time. Up until now, the word worship in the Bible has been used in the Scriptures only for temple worship and temple sacrifice. Worship has been centered around the temple for centuries and generations. But now something different is happening. Luke makes the point that the believers gathering anywhere in the name of Jesus with the Holy Spirit present among them are worshipping the Lord God of heaven. Antioch is a long way from Jerusalem, the temple and the priestly sacrifices. No need any longer to make that pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem in order to worship God. A worshipping community of Jesus Christ offers up their own sacrifice of praise and worship. And it's in that context of worship, believers gathered together around Jesus Christ and his life-giving gospel message, it's in the context of that kind of worship that mission springs, that mission begins, that mission is energized, that a mission begins to grow, and it begins to grow first in the hearts of the worshippers. And they began to get a vision, a spirit-filled vision of the power of this gospel and what it can do and where it can go. And it's there in a worship service that people often first feel the call of God on their lives to take the gospel to other places. And so it was here. While they were worshipping, the Holy Spirit said, It is our worship that lifts our eyes and hearts to see God's call to the nations. This is the work of the Spirit of the living God who calls people out for this very purpose that many more may hear and know and worship. Where there is no worship, there must be mission. Notice it says at the end of verse 2, for the work for which I have called them. God calls us into mission that we might call others with the gospel. And uh, how delightful it has been to hear in these different conversations with our missionaries how each of them in their own way have experienced God's call on their lives, but the commonality to those calls is the end result, is a gospel proclamation to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to those who walk in darkness. And it was with this intent this calling, this clarity of understanding that the church sent off Barnabas and Saul. This is the first instance in the book of Acts where we see a church proactively and purposefully sending out leaders to preach and teach in another place. Up until now we've seen the apostles doing it, but here the church is doing it, establishing a pattern for mission for years to come. 
Note it says there that the church sent them off in verse 3, but in verse 4 they went on their way led by the Holy Spirit. Here's a worshipping church in step with God's work. Perhaps some of you are being called by God to serve him overseas. To take the message of the gospel to other lands. As you've been here in this, uh, uh, this weekend and you've listened to the testimonies of missionaries and you've talked with them and you've been uh, struck by what they're doing and their sacrifice and their willingness and their commitment, perhaps you've wondered, I wonder if God would like me to be a missionary to a foreign land. Well, you should talk to your pastor or your elder or your missions committee. Perhaps there are others here who, like Barnabas, feel a strong calling to your own friends and relatives right here in this country. Perhaps you would like some help to get started. Perhaps you would like a, a sense of direction of what fits best with your gifts and understanding and, and, and you, need, uh, you need counsel from those who know you best. <clears throat> Again, talk to your pastor or elder or ministry leader. Wouldn't that be wonderful if this church became uh, <clears throat> a continuing, growing church of goers and senders? that many more who walk in darkness may see the great light of gospel, hope, and salvation in Jesus Christ. But as we keep reading in the book of Acts, we see that no sooner were Gentiles coming to salvation in Jesus Christ on this missionary journey that an internal dispute arose within the church that threatened the Christian gospel. Chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea uh, to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now if you just compare that to what Paul said in the very next chapter to the Philippian jailer, and the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? What a glorious opportunity that would have been for Paul to say, you must be circumcised, you and your household. And the gospel would have died right there. I'll find another religion, thanks. What did Paul say to the Philippian jailer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And here in 15.1 we're being told, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. This was going to be a life and death struggle for the gospel. The Acts the 15.1 gospel is a gospel that here is something that you can do to be saved. It's a works-based gospel. It's not a good news gospel. Now, at first blush, it might appear to be a good news gospel. Here is something that I can do that would strengthen my assurance that, yes, I can be saved because I am doing something For Jesus Christ, I am doing something in obedience to the law. I am doing something which will add to my salvation. I am doing something which will attract God's favor and God's saving grace on my life. Yippee! I can do something. 
That's a bad news gospel. (laughs) It's not a good news gospel. Why is that? Because, my friends, we could never be sure that we had done enough. We could never be sure that we were good enough. Now, all of us know, deep in our hearts, that if we tried harder, we could do better. We all know that. That's true for all of us. So an Acts 15.1 gospel comes along and says, yes, and if you try harder and if you do better, then God will be pleased with you and his grace and his salvation will be yours. I was having a conversation with an old man. He's in his 80s in a rest home. He'd been in church most of his adult life. And uh, I said to him, brother, are you expecting to go to heaven when you die? And he paused and he said, I hope so. I hope so. Well, I don't know what gospel he's trusting in, my friends, but it's not a good news gospel. He's hoping that all that he's done in his life will be good enough to get him there. But how can we ever be sure that we've done enough or we're good enough? We could never be sure of our standing with God. Every time we came to pray to God, we could never be sure that God was going to hear us because maybe I haven't been good enough or done enough to attract God's answers to my prayers. Maybe better if I get the pastor to pray because the pastor's probably done more and is gooder than me. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a pastor. If this declaration in 15.1 became the role in the church, it would mean the end of mission to the Gentiles. And the believers in Jesus would be absorbed back into synagogue life, into Judaism, which would be the grave of the Christian faith. If the circumcision party had won the day, the gospel would be lost, and those little flickering fireflies would gradually die out, and the darkness would return. There is nothing that we contribute to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. Amen? So there was so much at stake here in 15.1. It had to be settled before any further mission work to the Gentiles was undertaken. Paul and Barnabas and Peter had seen firsthand the evidence and the effect of life-giving repentance being granted by God to the Gentiles. So they openly opposed this teaching about circumcision sharply and vigorously and noticed that it came from from men who had come down from Jerusalem. And later on in the story, you realize that the Jerusalem leaders had not sent these men. They had acted independent of the Jerusalem leadership. So they were out of step with their own Jerusalem apostleship. And here they were preaching a false gospel. Now, you know, the smart thing for Antioch to have done would say, right, that's it, we're separating from the Jerusalem church, they're all a bunch of heretics, we're going out on our own, and we are going to be the the one true church to evangelize the world. But Antioch did not do that. They did not choose to separate on account of this false teaching. They were concerned for the unity of the whole church. So they sent off a delegation to Jerusalem. 
for an opinion from the apostles and elders of the Jerusalem church. And this trip to Jerusalem became Paul's chance to tell the brothers and leaders in Jerusalem all about his missionary trip in chapters 13 and 14 of Gentile conversion and church planting and the giving of the Holy Spirit by faith. And the high point of the council's deliberation came in 15 verse 7. Acts 15 verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus, that we are saved just as they are. What a beautiful statement. God who knows the heart, God who knows the heart, saw the genuineness of the Gentile repentance. God who knows the heart was not looking for outward signs like circumcision. He was looking for inward evidence of faith and repentance. God makes no distinction based on performance or appearance. Every time you look in the mirror, (laughs) you can remind yourself, God makes no distinction based on performance or appearance. Everybody else does. Rather, he purifies the heart by faith. And solely through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are saved. If their hearts have been purified by faith, made holy by faith in Jesus, sanctified by faith in Jesus, they have no need of circumcision. They have no need of anything else. They have been purified. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing. Don't let anybody, your elder, your spouse, your pastor, your parent, don't let anybody tell you that in order to be a good Christian, you must be this, 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 and this, and you must look like this, this, and this, and this, and you must do this, this, and this, and this. Friends, the good news gospel is that through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, God who knows the heart will purify your heart (laughs) and sanctify your heart. so that your access to the throne of grace will be unimpended and always available. To become Christians, the Gentiles need not become Jews, but they cannot remain pagans. Their obedience is necessary. Their obedience will not secure their salvation. Their obedience will proclaim their salvation. But the circumcision party remained unrepentant and continued to spread their false teaching among the Gentile churches for many years to come, laying upon believers a yoke they were never meant to bear. Yet the outcome of the first council meant that Paul would now be able to deliver this good news 
to the new Gentile churches and take the gospel of grace further into unevangelized territory. So Acts chapter 15 is a great cause of rejoicing and thanksgiving for each one of us. Every day of our Christian life we can wake up knowing that we have been saved and purified through faith in Jesus. No one can lay a burden of guilt upon us for our weak and stumbling efforts to live the Christian life. And they are weak and they are stumbling. You know, you, you get up... Uh, you get up in the morning and you have your quiet time and you have this wonderful time with the Lord and the Lord feels so near and he feels so close and you get in your car to drive to work and somebody cuts you off and suddenly you, you're, you're swearing but not out loud because Christians don't swear out loud and, and you do it in your heart and, and then you, you find yourself saying, what is going on with me? Half an hour ago I felt so close to the Lord and now I just feel so, you know, not close to the Lord. What's going on? Lord, I am weak. I am fragile. I am stumbling in my efforts to be your man and your woman in this world. And the Holy Spirit whispers into your ear, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover every sin. It's sufficient to cover every sin. And if we think we need to be something or do something, then what we're saying is the blood of Jesus is not sufficient. It'll go part the way and my efforts will go the rest of the way. It's a bad news gospel. There is no accusation Satan can level at you or whisper into your heart that can stand before the throne of grace in heaven. There is only one who stands before that throne and he stands there for you And for me, he is our man in heaven. And as we come before that throne of grace in fear and trembling, he is standing there and he reaches out his hand to usher us into the presence of the Almighty. And the hand that reaches out to usher us in has got the nail prints on it. And we see those nail prints. And so we come forward and we take that hand. And as he ushers us into the presence of his father, he indicates to his father with his nail-pierced hand, this is one of those for whom I died. This is one that my blood has ransomed. And the father smiles, and he puts out his arms to receive us because he loves us in the beloved. Saved and purified through the blood of my son, shed for you who continue to believe. The yoke of law-keeping has been lifted. My chains are gone. This is amazing grace that saves and purifies, and so the gospel goes global. Acts 16, verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Perga in Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysa, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysa and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so you can see Cappadocia on the map and Bithynia and Asia, and Paul is traveling. He's done on the eastern side of Asia. He's been ministering. He wants to move further into Asia, and the Holy Spirit says no. So he thinks, what about going north into Bithynia? And the Holy Spirit says no. So he doesn't want to go backwards. So the only way forward is to make a straight beeline to Troas on the coast there of the Aegean Sea. And there at Troas, he got the call, the Macedonian call. A man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so we give up our small ambitions in order for something far greater. So at Troas, Paul waited on the Lord, and the call came. It's perhaps impossible to overstate the significance of this call for the subsequent history of the church down to our present day. While Paul did not bring Christianity to Rome, his letter to the Roman Christians and his presence in the city of Rome would be used of God to establish a significant base for gospel expansion into what we know today as Western Europe. All Paul knew was that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Verse 10. And so the gospel came to Greece and to Italy in Paul's lifetime. And later these countries took the gospel to Spain and to the barbarian tribes of France and Germany and Britain and even beyond the borders of the Roman Empire. And when the barbarian hordes were at the gates of Rome in 400 AD, they were met by the elders of the church in Rome who negotiated with them on behalf of the city and behalf of the poorest of the poor who'd been left behind by those who had fled. And when some centuries later the Muslim armies came from the east and the south and all but wiped out the Christian church everywhere east of the Aegean Sea and in North Africa, it was to be Greece and Italy and Spain and the now converted barbarian tribes to the north who would hold on to the gospel for a thousand years until that day when God would raise up these very countries in Europe to take the now newly reformed message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth in what we know as the modern missionary movement of the last two centuries into lands that Paul could only dream of. And for the biblical record, it all began here in Acts 16, 6 to 10, when the Holy Spirit directed Paul to take the gospel west into the very heart of the Gentile world. So Christianity would become the religion of Europe. We mustn't let the smallness of our vision blind us to the greatness of God. When Paul crossed the Aegean Sea, he was putting the Roman Empire on notice. The days of the Caesars was coming to an end. The gospel was advancing on Rome with a power beyond that of any of the barbarian hordes that would sack the city in the 5th century. The Lord of the church is also the Lord of history, and he directs history for the sake of the church. And you could see God's hand in the history of of ancient Rome and, and subsequent centuries as the Lord's guiding hand directed the spread of the gospel so that you and I might be able to gather together in this place and proclaim the glory of God and the joy of the gospel message in Jesus Christ. God directs history 
for the sake of the church because when Jesus comes back, it's the church he's coming back for. The whole of history has that end point in the coming of Christ for his bride. So God is directing all of history toward that end point. So everything that you see in the world around you, God is using that in some way mysterious to us right now for the work and the good and the perfection of his church, his bride. And when that great day comes, we will be able to see all that God has been doing, and it will be marvelous. It will spend eternity praising him. So Paul and his companions headed across the sea to Philippi, and from there Paul made his way down the Greek peninsula, preaching and planting churches. The polytheism of the centuries, the polytheism of Greece had become the polytheism of the Romans, the polytheism of the centuries, the belief in many gods was giving way and being replaced by belief in the one true and living God. The curse was being rolled back. The darkness was being rolled back from the hearts of people. Do you know, polytheism is alive and well in our world today, and I just want to finish with this point this morning. Polytheism is still with us. In our own culture, yours and mine, polytheism has persisted and has even developed into an art form. There's a whole genre of movies and books that tell us stories of many gods and many superheroes who are men and women with godlike powers. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, they're all out there. And uh, all with the special effects that go with such amazing power. These, these, uh, these superheroes, they cannot die, but are constantly resurrected in one form or another. How do we respond to this fascination with the stories of many gods? And you'll appreciate that when Paul was in Athens, he was faced with the very same thing. So how do we, how do we help one another and how do we help our children? And, and how, how do we help our friends who, uh, to, to come to terms with this, with this fascination and obsession that modern media and entertainment have with superpowers, with godlike powers? Well, I have uh, three encouragements for you, and they three begin, all begin with R. We remind, re- we rework, and we recommit. And then we're done. We need to remind ourselves, as Paul reminded the Athenians, there was one creator God that all mankind owe their allegiance to. There are no other gods. There are no other alternative stories to explain superhuman power or realities. Remind ourselves. And secondly, we need to rework these stories. We can't ignore them. No use throwing stones at them. We need to engage with them for the purpose of reworking. We rework these stories of our day, that these stories that speak of many gods, many superheroes with godlike characteristics, and examine and critique them against Scripture and encourage our children to do the same and see how these fictitious gods fall far short in glory and power from the God of the Bible who created all things, whose air we breathe, whose image we bear. These fictitious gods cannot save us from our sins. They cannot grant us eternal life. 
They did not create the world. They did not create us. We do not bear their image. They offer us no help for our poor, sin-sick world who is racing at breakneck speed to its own destruction. No substitute for the God of the Bible can be both creator and yet an intimate, loving Savior who fills us every day with his Holy Spirit. And finally, we recommit ourselves again to following this God, loving and obeying him, and seeking to live our whole lives to his honor and glory. In this way, by reminding, reworking, and recommitting, these myths of polytheism can be turned to a saving purpose, a purpose that glorifies the true and living God and his Son, our Savior. So it begins with worshiping together. We continue to go and send. We continue to proclaim the gospel. We continue to plant churches. We continue to trust our Lord for the global ingathering of all who have been ransomed by his blood, for the glory of his name among the nations. May that gospel never cease to be proclaimed from this pulpit until the Son of Glory comes to take us all home to himself. Amen. Let's pray briefly. Father God, we thank you that the things that are most important to you are most clear in Scripture. The things that are most important for us to know are most clear in Scripture, and we have seen this a glimpse of this wonderful story in the book of Acts of the gospel going global. And and in many ways, Lord, that, that, that story is continuing as, as evidenced here in this missions conference. And, and Father, we pray that that in each of our hearts you would continue to do that wonderful work of assuring us that in Jesus Christ we can in all our weakness and hesitancy rise up and commit ourselves to your service and to your work knowing that through these jars of clay there is a great treasure to be seen that is the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory and in all his saving power. We ask in his name and for his sake alone. Amen.